Collaborate with other people on any project requires a certain amount of trust and often a willingness to admit what you do and don't know. In other words, a bit of exposure. Small wonder then that collaboration hasn't always come naturally to an otherwise competitive healthcare industry. But about 20 years ago, with alarming rates of errors and defects in healthcare delivery implicating the entire system, an openness to new ways of correcting problems ensued. That's about when the Institute for Healthcare Improvement developed a model called the Breakthrough Series Collaborative, and other actors in healthcare improvement also began to champion collaboratives as a way to bring teams together to engage in rigorous work to ultimately, together, reduce harm at all the participating organizations. This terminology doesn't actually do justice to the fundamental shift that occurred. To join a collaborative meant signing on to the collective notion that care could be and should be improved for everyone everywhere not just for the patients who happen to be using your hospital. So what have we learned about the model itself? Where are we now in 2015? Where are we headed? That's our topic on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live, such as now, bi-weekly, and also later listening and convenience can be found on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm IHI's Director of Communications. So we're in the midst of a new era of improvement in healthcare. It's increasingly coupled with improving population health. There are new policy and payment pressures and new expectations on the part of patients and families and frontline staff. Are collaboratives still the best way to meet these challenges? We're eager to hear what you think, as is our panel, so we'll introduce them in just a moment. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier, and he has some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window, and if you tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you and your panelists can, you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on the WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio hiccups, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution may be to pause the audio player and then press play. If that persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org WIHI along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Mitch. 
All right. Thanks, John. I want to uh, remind everybody we'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We also welcome tweeting during and after the program. And thanks for including at the IHI in your tweets so we can engage with you further on social media. All right. Let me get to guest introductions. Uh, everyone on the phone today joining me, Bruce Spurlock is executive director of Sinosure Health and leads and advises large improvement collaboratives at the regional, state, and national level designed to accelerate the implementation of evidence-based practices. Bruce is now the co-editor of a book about collaboratives that he'll tell you more about. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you, Madge. It's a delight to be here and be with everybody. All right, fantastic. Also on the phone, we have Jane Brock, who is a medical director of Telogen, the Medicare Quality Improvement Innovation Quality Improvement Organization. QINQIO for Colorado. She is currently the medical director of the CMS QIO 11th Statement of Work for the National Coordinating Center. Glad you're with us, Jane. All right, Jane's there. I know she is. Uh, we, we, we just talked to her a second ago, so hi, Jane. Andrea Capsinal is a vice president at IHI. She's active in the research and development team and leading major IHI initiatives. Since 1995, Andrea has directed multiple breakthrough series collaboratives and other improvement programs. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you, Madge. It's really great to have a chance to talk about collaboratives today. Fantastic. And Kedar Mate is a senior vice president at IHI overseeing the development of innovative systems designs to implement high-quality health care both in the U.S. and in resource-limited settings abroad. Kedar is an internal medicine physician and an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. Welcome, Kedar. Always good to be with you, Madge. All right. Thanks. We're underway. First question goes to you, Bruce. There are a lot of good reasons to be talking about collaboratives right now, but we have this nice and immediate excuse that you and Pat Tesker are publishing a book this fall on the topic. So I want to know what prompted this project, because I think that tells us a lot about uh, why we're even having this discussion right now. Thanks a lot, Bruce. Sure thing, Madge, and welcome, everybody. It's great to be with you, and I'm hoping you're having a great fall. Um, this was an exciting project that we undertook, this notion of creating a book about collaboratives. And um, I think the setting was that there's a, a, an explosion of collaboratives going on out there. We know that hospitals and physicians and other provider entities and organizations are seeing a number of collaborative opportunities on a regular basis, and we saw this collaborative fatigue. We actually heard a lot about it where organizations who had previously participated in these um, were thinking that they didn't need to participate as much. And so uh, we were fortunate enough to get a grant, a generous grant from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. We formed an advisory group, and Andrea was one of the members on that advisory group, um, along with 15 other people, and we talked about the notion, should we put a stake in the ground, should we take this time to put a book together that would sort of describe the current state of the art. And I need to emphasize that last word. It, it really is an art. Um, there, there is some science. There is some research behind it. But we decided to take more of an experiential, artful way of looking at this topic and seeing if it was a time to share that information. And it was an over, overwhelming agreement that this was the time to, to put a book together. So we set across that, that task of sort of describing what we know, what, where we've come from, and Don Berwick was so great to 
describe, as you talked about at the very beginning of the IHI Breakthrough Series model and, and how it's evolved over time, and then get into the weeds, the nuts and bolts about it. So this was a, about trying to make it practical and pragmatic for people to understand as we shared information, and from a variety of different perspectives, from from individual organizations that might have three or four hospitals, for example, health system, all the way up to national programs that went across from 3,000 hospitals and 4,000 physicians now that are involved in a, in a program with the federal government. So we wanted to get all the breadth and depth of experience about collaborative. So we, we ended up asking, and we had a fortunate ability to have 40 contributors uh, write for this book, and it was an incredible amount of time and energy and effort that they did. Andrea and Jane wrote for the book, and we're grateful to them and the other contributors. And it really was this diversity of perspective. It came out to be 14 chapters in an introduction. And again, the focus is, let's make it as pragmatic as possible. And let's illustrate it with real-life case studies of collaboratives that have been successful. And we actually even look forward, what was going to happen to collaboratives in the future? Where were the trends going? What kind of things could we think about that might give new opportunities and new ways to try to share learning together? And I think that's the real, the real nuts and bolts of it is that we learn better together than we do apart. If we can find a common set of aims or a common agenda from the participants, we can accomplish great activities. And so in the setting, as you described, of competition, we moved out to, in that pathway. And you put up on the screen this great theme that we had for the book, and it's a cover, uh, part of the cover note that Brent James wrote for us. He was one of our advisors and contributors, and Brent was a great uh, help to the, this whole project. And he wrote this quote that I'm going to share with the group now that really was the way we thought thematically about this whole process. And it's great to look and think about his words. He, he writes that knowledge comes in two flavors, knowledge that and knowledge how. Knowing that a bicycle has two wheels, a seat, handlebars, and a foot pedal crank, for example, stands in sharp contrast to the practical knowledge of how to ride a bike. And if you go to the next slide, I'll continue on with his, with his, uh, his quote. In the face of ever-accelerating rates of healthcare reform, the ability to quickly move from knowledge that to knowledge how is an increasingly essential organizational survival skill. In the end, ends this part of the cover note with the National Academy of Medicine in their motto, quotes Goethe, saying, not knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. And so the book and the project, and we had a launch meeting with 150 attendees last week, is really about sharing the knowledge that we have on how to, what Mary Beth uh, Sharp at the Moore Foundation quotes, the how-to, how-to of running a collaborative and driving and accelerating change. So the real pragmatic nuts and bolts types of type of information that would really help address this fatigue situation we're seeing. So I think that's really the setting of, of what we were trying to accomplish, and, and it's not actually done. The, the advisory group said, you know, books are great, but not everybody learns from books, and not everybody reads books these days, and so we need to come up with other activities. And so that's the stage of the project we're in now as we finalize the book that will be available later uh, this month in early November. We're, we're actually doing plus activities. So we're, we videotaped people last week at our conference. We're putting some blogs together, a series of webinars, and ways to try to share and disseminate the information that's contained in the book through alternative formats. The people that learn and understand and, and try to take in new information using different formats are going to be reached as well. So we're really excited about this. The time is right, and, you know, IHI set the stage with the great work over the many years with the IHI Breakthrough Series model. We referenced that many times in the book and at the meeting, and it's great to be building off of the, the strong work of the organization. 
Thank you so much, Bruce. Uh, Bruce, excuse me. A very uh, exciting and uh, really good framing, and we appreciate that. So more to come, and we'll have a lot of the links either during the chat right now or in our resource document that we post the next day to make sure you can find your way uh, to all everything we referenced today, but also to make sure that you can stay tuned to when the book is actually finished and available. All right, Andrea, I, I think your ears had to be burning here in terms of the Breakthrough Series model. Uh, as Bruce uh, mentioned, Don Berwick uh, does a great job in the book at telling the, the wonderful story uh, about the Breakthrough Series, which, like a lot of wonderful things, began on a napkin sketch. Uh, and then we're in a minute. We'll show you how that went to a notepad and then to a whole model. So how would you characterize the importance of this breakthrough idea? And uh, I know we don't give anybody much time on WIHI, but uh, hit some of the high points for us in terms of this history, which you have been in kind of lockstep with uh, all along. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks, Matt. Uh, yes, I could do the three-day, the ten-day course on how the Breakthrough Series Collaborative started, but I will do the five-minute version of it. Um, I was very lucky and honored to be in at the beginning when it was being designed, and um, there's a whole lot more information um, in the white paper that we wrote in 2003 that um, that gives some of this history in a little bit more, and that's available on IHI.org. Um, in the very beginning, IHI, which was a young organization then, was teaching lots of courses on quality improvement and, and the industrial uh, quality methods that were new to healthcare. Don Berwick, Paul Batalden, and others were working really hard to bring a much more effective way to change into healthcare. And after a few years, they looked up and said, wow, these courses are great. People love them, and there's not enough happening. Things are changing too slowly, and our point was not to give people knowledge. Our point was to change results. And so that's when the famous napkin story came up, um, and they sat down and said, so what really is missing here? What's missing is action and pace. And they thought about how those pieces could come together, and you can see on the left-hand side of this slide uh, a note page that came from the the fabled napkin that was their idea about how to create action and pace. The first thing they did was build um, a, a rhythm between learning and action periods so that people could take knowledge, go do some work, and come back and share that learning. Um, so really to, fo to force the action that's required for people to learn if you just think you know what to do but you don't actually do anything. You don't know if you're right or not and you learn very slowly. Once you start trying and learning what happens when you try, you go much faster. The second piece of it was the collaboration. And we all know that you do better when you have companions for the journey and this was certainly true in the early Breakthrough Series Collaborative where people learned to share both their successes and failures so that they could move faster as learners, and that added the pace. We put a timeline into it. The slide you see on the right is the current version of the Breakthrough Series engine, um, which uh, we've been following and building on ever since. The third thing they did um, was to name it the Breakthrough Series. So you notice it's not called the Itty Bitty Change Series. 
that at the time, breakthrough was a, a very specific word which meant we're going to go way beyond where we were before. And that was motivating and exciting to people, and it was attractive, and so it moved people along pretty quickly. I would have to say that um, along the way, ITI's done oh, at least 52 Breakthrough Series collaboratives and lots of variants of it for different reasons, and there's been a great deal of learning along the way. It's all based on this idea that in order to change, you need will, the motivation, ideas, what, what could be better, and execution, a, a way to do it. The early Breakthrough Series topics were all things where we knew that there was a better way to to do something, to get results, to reduce C-section rates, which was our first collaborative, um, and many, many others. Um, and, uh, and so we built on that. Every time we made adjustments to the Breakthrough Series collaborative model, we, um, we learned a lot about using will ideas and execution. Um, so uh, I guess I wanted to mention both the challenges and the bright spots. And I'll start with the challenges. Uh, there were really two. One is that we often saw teams coming into collaboratives without a system to support them, without leaders that believed in what they were doing, and we had to learn how to engage their leaders in supporting them so that their efforts didn't lay fallow when they were done with the project, particularly when they were making pretty good progress. We also tripped a little bit on the difference between improvement and research um, and had to learn how to differentiate those and help people use them appropriately. A lot has been done on that sense. But the bright spots, I think, are the, the things I want to close with. The first is the joy of the people making the changes when they see that they can try something, adjust it, move fast, learn from others, and see results, see that line on the run chart go exactly where they want it to go. It is, It was refreshing and motivating and attractive to people, and it was probably the most exciting thing about the Breakthrough Series. The second really bright spot was that we started teaching other people to do Breakthrough Series collaboratives, and I think many of the people that are on the phone learned through our Breakthrough Series College, which started in 2001, and um, it's been really exciting to see how people like Bruce and the Moore Foundation and the Keystone Project, my goodness, we trained over a 1,000 people, including one year all of the QIOs to do collaboratives. And so the growth in knowledge and, and use of this approach has been terribly exciting. And you'll hear a bunch more about it because there are people on the phone that have been doing just that. Thank you so much, uh, Andrea. Appreciate it. I also want to remind people, if anyone has joined just by phone and you're not on the WebEx, remember you can email info at IHI.org to get today's slides. We also, again, to everyone uh, on the WebEx, uh, there's a link to today's slides. They'll also be posted to the website tomorrow. All right. Thanks, Andrea. And Bruce before Andrea, and now we're going to turn to Jane Brock. So I am told, Jane, your name is practically synonymous with collaboratives. And when I spoke with you ahead of today's program, you said the word that comes next is adaptation. And then after that, the phrase collective impact. So tell us about your history, Jane, with collaboratives and why certain words and phrases have been so key to your thinking and experience, perhaps to this day. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, and thank you for this opportunity. So um, I just want to make it clear that whatever I know, 
um, about collaboratives is that you're being very generous um, is really uh, based on on work and support that's been done by literally a cast of thousands. So, um, you know, I work with the QIO program I work for. Intelligent, which is a QIO, and, and I'm serving in the role of the National Coordinating Center now. But, you know, in a way, the QIO program um, itself is a type of national collaborative. You know, in reality, it's not so much a national program as it is uh, an aggregation of a set of um, state programs, which then do their work often through local community um, initiatives. So in this entire body of work, you know, it's a national federal program that's uh, one of the key pieces of the national quality strategy, um, but but uh, it's really impossible to overestimate the impact that what we learned um, from IHI about the big breakthrough series collaborative model has had um, on our work. I mean, it's really inconceivable to me now that we would go about this work without thinking about the role and structure of collaborative learning. So um, local initiatives uh, support collaboration among multiple provider types, um, as well as community support agencies, as well as patients and families. Um, they then, uh, community initiatives and other initiatives, um, foster collaboration amongst uh, participants in various communities at the state level, and then um, QIOs at the national level um, also share again and try to uh, be sure that they have a platform for highlighting and sharing best practices and methods. So I just want to show a couple of initiatives uh, that, that we have results from um, in the recent past that are continuing today. So um, for, for folks that are interested in these um, in this body of work, um, the, my first slide was our website where you can find out a lot more about these because I'm, of course, just going to gloss over the um, highlights here. So a recent uh, task uh, that, that uh, Quinn's are working on that, that probably most closely resembles the classic breakthrough series um, is the National Nursing Home Quality Care Collaborative. And this is the results from the campaign that ran uh, from 2013 to, to 2014. So this was, um, this was an initiative in which um, CMS and QIO leaders developed a change package based on a lot of interviews and site visits with high performers. Um, and uh, QIOs were encouraged to recruit nursing facilities to a local collaborative as well as to a national collaborative um, and, and were encouraged to focus on um, struggling facilities. So um, this was so successful in terms of the recruitment that um, over 5,000 facilities eventually participated, um, and it went well beyond just um, a focus on um, struggling facilities and became really more of a, um, a local and national uh, learning venue. So the original vision was that it would be the, the uh, three in-person learning events as well as three national in-person learning events. But, but very shortly after uh, kickoff, it became apparent that not only would this be um, a burden on nursing facility staff who were um, eager to participate, um, but that that there was um, you know a feeling that that resources uh, could perhaps be redeployed from travel into you know uh, more improvements, more direct improvement work. So so the the a, a very early adaptation here, and I think it's a very common adaptation at this point, um, was to um, really focus on virtual learning events. So 
um, you know, there's a couple of things that have changed <laughs> since the original Breakthrough Series was developed. And um, one is the remarkable wealth of, of resources now that support virtual learning. Um, so uh, facilities all could choose um, among a variety of measures that they wanted to work on. And the, it was reported out as a composite score, a composite of 13 different quality measures. And um, as you can see, we, that we believe this is successful and this work is continuing uh, now today um, in a second um, collaborative. So, so the, the, the notion of t taking in-person meetings to virtual has you know, a number of pros and cons, and I feel like it's it's worthy of, of further and intentional development, and I suspect people on the phone here um, probably have expertise in this as well. Um, but so the great thing is, you know, you can really spread the, the work and the resources available within a facility by making it virtual. So, you know, you now actually can have the administrator um, participating or listening in, um, your boss or, or whoever needs to ensure that you have the resources to do the improvement work. Um, can be as involved as they want to be, so, so it really widens the net. Um, on the other hand, it can reduce the consistency of individuals actually participating, even if facility participation is um, consistent over time. So um, in thinking about how to adapt learning events and uh, you know aggregation of best practices um, in a virtual environment, I think is an area that's, that's uh, ripe for um, a, a lot wider and intentional discussion. Um, in the second wave of this collaborative, I might add, um, nursing homes are now going to be focusing on um, C. diff uh, reduction, which I think will really extend the notion of collaboration around nursing home quality improvement to include you know, a wider variety of providers as well. So we're, we're very excited to get that work started soon. Um, this is um, uh, the results of our collaboration to reduce hospital readmissions, well, I should say to, to better integrate care for Medicare beneficiaries as they leave the hospital. So when we um, started this <laughs> this work uh, quite some time ago, um, it was originally envisioned as you know a hospital type project, but but it very quickly morphed into um, a cross-setting multi-provider, including community support services, um, local collaboratives with local collaboratives, local community initiatives, collaborating with each other, and uh, QIOs and others who are supporting these local collaboratives, sharing at the national level. So so this was work again from uh, 2000. 2011 to 2014 that eventually involved communities uh, representing about a third of all Medicare beneficiaries. Um, and uh, we think this one uh, was also successful as well. But this is where we realized this, this was... Uh, this this work, and I think it's increasingly a common way to use collaborative learning methods. Um, you know, it's very messy um, in that what what really happens once you get a continuum of providers, um, patients, their caregivers, um, and and community support agencies involved. You know, it goes forward as as very nonlinear work, um, and it's it's multiple different kinds of tests of improvement kind of occurring um, concurrently, and it's up to the sort of orchestrating agency in this case. QIO to try to um, really hone right in on best practices and how that was done and ensure that, that uh, other people in similar roles, both within that community and across the national initiative, um, have a proper sharing platform. So in that way, we took, we took a lot of um, resources from the methods of um, collective impact. Um, and so collective impact um, is based on the premise that, that if you think of a single guiding measure that's not individual specific, sort of a roll-up measure to follow, that that helps energize multiple types of participants who can all contribute to a common goal. So in that work, we have um, uh, 
developed uh, measures of readmissions per population, per thousand beneficiaries um, living in the community, and that's been very useful. Um, so uh, those, are, those are a number of adaptations that we are working on, refining, defining, evolving, um, whatever whatever word you'd like there. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, before I turn to Kadar, very quickly, somebody has asked about the blue, the red, and the yellow on our your map there. If you could just quickly, it's 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 a little small on the screen there. Uh, so maybe just quickly tell people what those refer to. Um, yes, these are all a number of community-based uh, initiatives. So the red ones were the um, the formally recruited communities uh, from the QIO. If you blow up the map, this is terrible. I, I would need to look at the legend myself to be sure I characterize the, okay. the yellow ones correctly. <laughs> uh, but anyway, these are communities that were formally recruited, communities that were otherwise engaged in the work, and um, other known community initiatives going forward that were using QIO data. Okay, that sounds great. Maybe we can make a reference to that in our resource document, so make sure sure if anyone has any questions uh, about that. Thank you, Jane. And as you can tell, everyone's kind of breathless because uh, they're trying to convey a lot in a short amount of time, but I can already see the questions lining up. So we're going to go to those in just a few minutes. Uh, Kadar, are we at a tipping point with collaboratives? Uh, people are starting to allude uh, to yet new adaptations, um, and I'm wondering in some ways, does that challenge the bedrock model uh, for the improvement movement, and um, and why might that be the case? What kinds of new things are emerging? Thanks. Well, thank you, Madge. Um, I'll I'll try to keep this pretty short, but I I do think there's a lot of things that are changing in the wider you know healthcare transformation market environment. We're facing new pressures, as you alluded to at the top of the hour. You you, you talked about new pressures, new payment changes, new regulatory pressures. Um, in addition, I think our teams and our delivery systems face pressures on them around limited resources and time, uh, you know, new factors that are kind of really changing the way that we, uh, that are putting pressure, I should say, on collaboration as a phenomenon um, and increasingly inviting us to, to take advantage of what technology might offer in terms of, uh, you know, using virtual and social media and other types of things to try to encourage communication and collaboration. I also think that as as teams come together less and as we you know try to do things across distances, uh, there's at least a threat you know that the the interstitium of a collaborative, the the uh, the the culture of a group of people coming together, making common cause and trying to solve a problem, that type of environment uh, which is free of fear, free of blame, free of uh, um, really the, the, the sense that uh, that people will judge them and that there will be reprisal, that type of uh, culture within a collaborative is threatened, I think, in some level by, by the need to be, uh, you know, away and, and, and virtual and, and not necessarily in person. And I, I think there's some, uh, as, as is on the slide right now, for those of you that can see it, there are some forces and trends in the market environment today that I think are are interesting and that might be conveying uh, the opportunity to potentially generate new uh, and different forms of learning and advancing improvement work. So just a couple of these just to summarize for uh, for us. I think there's increasingly, as, as Andrea mentioned, you know, IHI and other organizations uh, like uh, Bruce's Sinusure have been teaching organizations how to conduct collaboratives um, and that's a, that's a good thing. We're spreading the methodology and uh, there are lots of collaboratives happening um, around the country, around the world, um, and lots of organizations that are, are doing collaboratives within, insourcing, I would call it. Um, as, as we encounter more sort of pay-for-performance or incentive-based programs, 
that reward sort of top decile performers, uh, there's an interesting uh, thing that happens to markets that the, the, the sort of intrinsic desire or motivation to collaborate diminishes because um, if, in fact, you're going to be rewarded based on whether or not you stand out, the idea that you share your success stories with your neighbor and it could possibly raise all boats, um, really the incentive to do that uh, is reduced. And I think that's, a, that's an important threat and an important sort of side effect, if you will, of pay for performance and, and, uh, and uh, financial incentives. There's, a, there's an interesting, um, interesting something that we heard about when we were doing our research at IHI around collaboratives. There's an interesting potential weakness within collaboratives that I think is something that we have to understand better, which is that it relies, I mean, in principle, the collaborative relies on um, the social capital of the participating team members so that they come, you know, for example, to a learning session or to a face-to-face meeting. They gather great ideas about how to improve, and then they're expected to go back home and, in some senses, teach their colleagues, spread the word, you know, communicate the lessons, and help implement new reforms and changes back home. And there's a, there's a potential challenge to that if, the, if, you know, for example, the wrong team is chosen or the uh, potentially leadership isn't supportive of that team in the way that Andrea was describing, I think, when she was giving her remarks. It may compromise the effectiveness of the collaborative and the impact uh, that's seen back at home. So there's something... Um, you know, potentially, uh, there's some vulnerability potentially in, in the as well. And, and ultimately, you know, there is a, there's a lot going on with collaboratives right now. There's lots of sort of what I describe as scope explosion. Bruce, you referred to kind of the explosion of the number of collaboratives. I'd say also that collaboratives are changing in their nature. They're, they're becoming a lot of different things. Um, uh, they're trying to take on a lot of different uh, topics um, and some that are stretched well beyond what was intended, I think, on the, the napkin, you know, the whole system transformation, t- the types of goals that, you know, uh, are not narrowly, couldn't narrowly be accomplished in the 12 to 18-month period. Um, and, of course, collaboratives, <laughs> I like this uh, suggestion. One person that we talked to suggested that collaboratives are, are the equivalent of workouts. You know, sort of the term collaborative uh, equals the term workout, meaning that, uh the workouts obviously mean different things to different people. The 400-plus people on this phone call probably have different versions of the word workout. Um, and in some senses, collaboratives have come to mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I think those are some of the, the threats or the trends or the, the things that are going on in the market environment. And as a result of that, I think there are um, new and emerging learning system designs that are, uh, that are really coming to the, to the front. Um, and, and depending on how... Uh, much we want to be about results and how much we want to be about uh, really uh, clearly achieving measurable aims uh, and how uh, strictly the participants in the learning platform want to share knowledge and ideas, uh, those types of decisions kind of affect the type of learning system that organizations are selecting these days to help them achieve their goals. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there and, and, and turn it back to you, Matt. Thanks, Kadar. Let's throw up your last slide here because I think it just maybe will kind of set us up nicely for the discussion on new designs uh, for new challenges. Kadar also put this together. Um, you got that fourth slide there, John? Let me just get that one. There we go. Thanks. So the using clinical registries, curated repositories, just say a minute about these uh, just because they're part of the future perhaps. Go ahead, Kadar. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and actually, there's one that's not on here, which is collective impact models, which Ken Davis referred to in the chat. And I think, 
these are trying to answer different challenges. So uh, I'll just give you a few of these. Um, clinical registries are, um, you know, a very interesting phenomenon. There, there are now hundreds of these clinical registries out there. Many of them have approached IHI to say, you know, we collect all this data, we provide benchmark information to our partners and our colleagues, all the people that are submitting their information to us. How do we actually leverage the data within clinical registries to power improvement work? How do we use it to to conduct useful quality improvement work, and how do we connect it to not only improvers but also researchers and actually conduct, you know, not only good improvement work but also good uh, research. Um, the the collaboratory, and this is a phenomenon that was um, started, for example, in in computer science and in in, in physics and industry. Um, collaboratories were, you know, by nature they have the, the two words, collaboration and laboratory. And these were usually small groups of innovators that were coming together um, that were made very explicit um, commitments to share information and knowledge, and they treated the knowledge that they were trying to develop as experimental. They were trying to build something new. They were trying to create a new code, for example, for a computer system or an operating system. And they, these collaboratories were truly uh, experimental areas. You know, these were not places where you were taking evidence-based best, best practice and spreading them across a wide geographic area. These were uh, the type of learning systems that were aimed at kind of formative learning, trying to experiment and design new ways of thinking about how to do, how to achieve impact. And then to overcome the challenge that I mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, individuals, you know, having to go somewhere. Uh, get some uh, great ideas and then coming back and expending their social and political capital uh, and maybe not being listened to properly within their institutions or perhaps their their work doesn't get picked up by their uh, colleagues because of you know normal business operations kicking in and you know the momentum dies for the improvement work we have started thinking about how to kickstart change in situ how do we how do we leverage technology to actually get teams up and running in in situ not not asking people to leave their home environments and move uh, but actually kick-starting change, you know, at the point of care um, on the day that they participate in the program. So different design challenges to meet the kind of enduring, uh, uh, you know, challenges we're seeing in uh, the new learning requirements of today. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Kedar. And uh, folks, you've all, uh, thanks to everyone who's uh, set the table for us so nicely now on our panel. John, just a quick reminder uh, for our chat folks, uh, just so everybody can get in there. And I'm going to already try. I'm trying to group some questions together, and we'll we'll get started. Yep, just make sure all your questions and comments are directed to all participants down in the chat bar. Okay, thanks, John. All right, I'm actually going to feed right off of this final uh, point. Uh, Kedar's got on his slide, Achieving Rapid Spread might be a campaign of Kaizen events. Andrea, why don't I uh, turn to you, if that's okay. Somebody actually asked whether a collaborative is another way to refer to a Kaizen or similar, and I wondered if you might be able to address that. Sure. You know, what's really interesting is that there are lots of things that we do that include collaboration, meaning people getting together. A collaborative is a specific activity where we're bringing people from across different places together and hearing uh, and helping them try new things and hearing how they have learned and share data and together they drive toward a very specific result. So it has a few things in common with the Kaizen event, but my experience with Kaizen events is it's usually within an organization and it's shorter and quicker and everybody 
uh, in it is working on the same system. So it's a little it's a little bit different, and probably the best collaboratives we've had have people from diverse places who are having slightly different experiences driving toward the same result. Okay, thank you very much. Bruce, uh, let me ask you this, because I'm wondering uh, if it's taken up uh, in the book, uh, All In, that'll be out soon. Um, several people have asked about the virtual collaborative, uh, the differences, uh, whether it changes kind of the relationship building that may go on, uh, how do you balance the in-person uh, opportunities with virtual participation, and maybe even some of the different people who show up on a virtual uh, um uh, collaborative or webinar. Uh, somebody was referring the, to the convenience that maybe you can have your administrators tune in. That might also change the dynamics of what's going on. So I don't know if that's a, a theme that uh, is taken up in the book, but uh, do you have some thoughts on that? Yes, it is. It is discussed on several in several different areas about sort of the value and the opportunities. And I think Jane addressed some of those very, very nicely. I think if you ask most of the contributors, I think it almost almost be universal about the value of in person. So um, virtual is an adjunct uh, to what would be optimal would it be in person. But in some environments and on national collaboratives, it's very, very challenging to get people in. And there's a whole movement now to keep people back at home. It's hard to spend time on the road and doing improvement work at the same time. And so you, you lose some of those opportunities. And we're also seeing that um, people are not traveling as much. Travel budgets to go to meetings are not as able to do that. And, and so having a national scale is really challenging to do in person. So it really benefits to Think about it on a smaller scale, regional or state level or something of that order to develop it. But there's something important, whether it's virtual or, or in person, that you try to replicate in both settings. And that's giving itself an identity, that there's something bigger than you and your organization, that it's a, it's a goal, it's, a, it's an aim, it's something that's much, much more important and much bigger than you could ever be that you join into. And that sense of identity, the sense of community is one of the major components that drives improvement. And then I think you alluded to the second, the second major activity that's really important is that you have to have trust in a, in a collaborative. It has to be built on the basis of trust. And the greatest learning happens when people are vulnerable. You started off the session with, with that vulnerability as an important straight, uh, uh, strata to be able to do. We, we always take the bright spots. We always take the high performers, the early adopters, and try to use those as the, as the guiding lights. But it's when they were the most vulnerable and when they learned the most at being vulnerable is when we find that that relationship and that trust really grows in, in that community. And so identity and relationship of trust are really important, whether you do in-person or virtual collaboratives. Uh, to be successful. Thank you very much. Uh, Jane, you may want to piggyback on that, and maybe I'll throw you this other question. Somebody has asked about sort of scoping exactly what the collaborative is going to work out, um, work on, uh, kind of how broad you go, how narrow you go, and what, what can be achieved uh, kind of in the uh, time frame of uh, maybe a typical collaborative. Any thoughts on that? And feel free to uh, piggyback on what Bruce was just saying, too. Uh, yes, well, there's always a, a, a fair amount of tension around, uh, yeah, going too broad or going too deep. So, um, in, in reference to the readmission um, reduction work, this is where we we took a huge page out of the collective impact structure, um, to which we then apply this notion of collaborative learning. You know, with um, action periods and regrouping 
to share best practices and see where you are. And, and uh, the key one for me is coming up with a motivating measure that is easily and publicly trackable to where you don't have to share it under wraps um, as you would with individual provider performance data. Um, so we think that's been enormously helpful for getting people to focus on the same thing, despite the fact that the work needs to divide up very quickly um, into, you know, things home health agencies should do, things that patient advocacy groups can do to help to help promote the greater vision of, of what this sort of collaborative learning um, environment is, is trying to achieve. Um, we, um, I, I just wanted to make a comment about about virtual versus in person. I couldn't agree more that there's there, there's huge benefit always to in person um, work. I think you know people enjoy it. They we we find with the local work that often the performance starts to improve as soon as you've had your first meeting, just because people met each other. That, that it, there's this sort of intangible thing that changes. Um, uh, however, we also have invested a lot in. Um, training ourselves and training others in techniques of community organizing, you know, like political campaign style community organizing. Um, and we found that to be tremendously effective for getting people to understand um, their role within a collaborative structure. And I think it makes it easier um, if you have, have had some in-person time to use some of these community organizing techniques to establish intentional relationships. Um, I think then virtual is um, a little easier to hold together. Now, we, have we tested that? No. Do I have a data slide? No. Um, but but um, we think that's been a really valuable technique. We, um, we've, I need to give a shout-out to Rethink Health, who has been very effective in promoting the use of community organizing techniques for, for holding joint work together. Okay, thank you very much. Kadar, on the scoping issue, uh, what, do you have, what do you have for us? Well, uh, thank you, Madge. I, I had a couple of additional thoughts on this, and, and thanks to, I think it's Claudia here um, in the chat, um, who's asked this question about how to help organizations to narrow their scope. But just two thoughts, because there is a time period, um, you know, 12, 18 months uh, or, or longer. I mean, it could be longer or shorter, depending on how, uh, the, the folks facilitating a collaborative uh, want to arrange it. Uh, but it is important to think about and, uh, you know, how exactly the, whatever the content is that you hope to convey in the collaborative, I think it's important to, to think through two kind of primary issues. What does the science tell you about the intervention that you're trying to spread? So if this is a, a you know, a clinical intervention of some kind, you know, for example, uh, you know, we're running a collaborative, for example, uh, on maternal, uh, maternal and child health. Uh, well, you know, if it's about a, a maternity outcome, well, you know that the antenatal period is, is uh, 40 weeks, and you know that the interpartum period is X, and then you're going to know that the postpartum period, depending on how far you're going to follow out, is going to be at least a month for neonatal outcomes. Well, that gives you almost a year just for uh, the time horizon for an, a single individual that goes through your system. So you look at the clinical reality that you're trying of the of the change that you're trying to spread. And then also look at the execution uh, time frame is, is how I think about this. What's the um, science behind the clinical change or the clinical process that you're trying to change? And then what's your experience? And it doesn't have to be, strictly speaking, evidence-based. You know, there doesn't have to be a randomized control study. But what's your experience from your work or preliminary work that's feeding into the collaborative design? What's your experience of how long it takes to put in place the system-level features that are going to help you reliably implement that clinical change, if it is a clinical change. 
And that will give you then a, the, the nature of, first of all, it might give you the time horizon for your collaborative, and it might give you a sense of uh, how you might need to scope differently if, in fact, this is going to get, you know, it's going to take years for you to achieve this sort of thing. Okay, thank you very Two much. Two ideas, sir. Yeah, good. Kadar also chatted some of that in. Um, Andrea, I think I'm going to turn to you for starters on uh, some questions about uh, data. Um, there's basically a question about sort of how data, you know, ends up being collected in a kind of cross, uh, in a collaborative fashion, um, sort of how, how it gets collected over time. And also um, there was another question also about what have we learned uh, about effectiveness of collaboratives from the data uh, that has been collected? How well have these been studied? Thanks. Well, there have been lots of studies about collaboratives and uh, whether they work or not, and some of them said, bravo, yes, indeed, and some of them said, ah, we don't see it. Um, I would say that maybe the most important thing about a collaborative is that an organization comes in, collects their own data, and watches the changes on a run chart so that they know whether they're making a difference in the result or outcome that they're seeking. And and that's that's sort of the don't pass go issue. If they don't have that, then we don't know if anything's going on. The next level, which has become very popular since the breakthrough series began, is can we compare data across organizations? And our initial response to that was it really doesn't matter what the other guy is doing. All that matters is you need to get better, so you need to watch yourself. And um, the work on benchmarking when we started wasn't important at all. And, in fact, we sort of talked people out of focusing on that because the time it takes to get data that's good enough to make the comparisons across organizations is pretty much wasted time if you think about an organization trying to improve from where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that there have been some great successful collaboratives that have taken the time, a year or two, to get the data right so they can compare. The Keystone one comes to mind, quite a few from CMS, James. They're wonderful to have. But at the very basic level, an organization collecting their own data, using their own definitions, and being consistent about it, to me, is uh, is the the basics if you think that collaboratives are about improving performance at the local level. Okay, very good. Thank you. There is a question. And Madge, oh, please, go can ahead. I just add to that? Okay. Yeah, I, I would absolutely support what Andrew just said. So it is very nice to keep a collaboration together, to have a big roll-up metric. So I'm, I'm, I'm always going on about this. To me, the best quality improvement metric I know of is the United Way thermometer. You know, it's just so easily understood, and it doesn't have to be privately protected. However, it is not a replacement for um, individual data collected by individuals for the purposes of guiding their own projects. Um, that's that's um, it, it's almost a so roll-up data is great for tracking overall improvement and keeping a collaborative focused. Uh, but yeah, individual provider collected data is where um, individual improvement happens. So anyway, sorry, just want to make that clear. No, that's fine. 
Bruce, a question for you. Uh, we know uh, our own dear Joe McCannon, uh, working now with the Billions Institute, who was with IHI for a long time, uh, has a, a nice chapter in the book about large-scale change uh, and some of his thinking about that. That chapter, by the way, folks, if you go to Sinusure's website, is one that's available for free reading right now. Um, but I really wanted to talk about the issue. Somebody has asked about large-scale change and collaboratives in the service of that. Uh, Joe also tries to take that up uh, in terms of uh, to what extent collaboratives and other types of formations can maybe bridge that gap between um, things that we've achieved and then taking them to scale. Uh, thoughts on that, Bruce? Yeah, I think, I think it's a good question and a good point to, to make. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that collaboratives accelerate learning faster than the background rate. So p- the system isn't getting better. I mean, over time, we're, we're getting better. There's lots of evidence of that, and some of that happens just because people learn new things and, and spread. I, I think there's also evidence that people have talked about how it takes a long time. There's the, the famous one that everybody points to. It takes 17 years to go from publication to broad dissemination. And, and there's some personal experience we have with that. But n- nonetheless, I think the notion that we need to accelerate, that we have to accelerate, that our healthcare system demands it both externally and internally is, is an imperative that people are facing these days. And so collaboration is a strategy to do that. Getting together and is, is a great way to do that. There's a caveat. And the caveat is that not every practice or not every thing is ready for broad-scale dissemination. It has a half-life sort of, of, you know, if it's published in one setting. So let's talk about an academic environment where there's an academic paper or an academic uh, report that comes out that was done in an academic setting, like a hospital or or clinic setting. Um, It may not translate as well until it's tested in different settings. And Jane actually talks about this in her chapter on adaptation. One of the things we've learned the most is that even evidence-based practices need to be adapted, especially on implementation for different contexts. And we're at the very beginning stages of that context. What do we? What kind of context demands what kind of adaptation? We're just starting to think and learn and explore that. But I, I think that this notion that every practice is ready for national dissemination and national spread is probably an error. And having a sense of where you are in that that life cycle of of the spread ability maybe is a way to do it. Is to think about how much it's been tested and proven in different contexts. And once we have a practice that has a variety of different contexts, a variety of different settings that we've seen success, it probably then can go to a much broader community. But we do have sort of alpha and beta uh, components to thinking about broad scale uh, spread. And Joe points that out very nicely in this chapter and, and, and Jane's discussion, how and where we think about adapting even ones that have been well-established in the literature, well-established in a variety of different contexts, even how you make micro-adjustments to make sure it works in your setting are, are very important components of the collaborative of the future. Thanks, Bruce. Um, John, a quick comment from you about something we just want to make sure people know about? Yeah, of course. Let me just get to the slide. <laughs> okay. It's, the, uh, yeah, the IHI Open School uh, is pleased to offer um, uh, MOC Part 2 activity points for the American Board of Pediatrics uh, and the American Board of Family Medicine. 
um, and their hope is to expand to other specialty boards in the coming year. Uh, to learn more, visit IHI.org slash MOC. All right. Thanks so much, John. All right. We're, we've got, we're going to wrap up now in the next five minutes, and I'm really just going to go around the horn. Uh, lots of great questions, a lot of interesting learning shared. One thing we didn't do today, uh, but I really do want to acknowledge, uh, collaboratives have also uh, taken hold in many different countries right now and globally, and we could probably devote a whole show uh, to that. Uh, IHI has uh, seen uh, amazing things that have happened in Africa and other locations, and I'm sure others could point to examples uh, with that model. But let me uh, sort of go around the horn now. Kator, maybe I'll start with you and just sort of some parting shots. Uh, I don't know anything you really want to uh, finally say. Um, I don't know where, where we're headed, <laughs> what, what we might do to watch this space over the next year in terms of what <coughs> unfolds in, in, with this uh, topic. Thanks. Well, thanks, Madge. Um, I, let, me, let me say this. I think we were uh, commissioned by uh, IHI's leadership team. Our research team was commissioned by IHI's leadership to uh, really uh, dive into our experience with collaboratives um, and uh, uh, understand kind of our, our thinking about collaboratives now. Um, and we uh, came to the very solid conclusion that collaboratives are here to stay. They have grown and expanded and matured and adapted, and the wisdom and creativity of people all around the world are helping us to grow and adapt and learn and develop uh, collaboratives further. I, I have no doubt that collaborators will continue to, in, in some form or other in our improvement universe. And just on the, on the screen right now is uh, just one last slide for me, which is a, a set of principles that we derived as part of our research work about learning systems for improvement. And, and this is a, a specific phrase, learning systems for improvement. There are many learning systems that are about you know, transferring knowledge and about helping organizations to pick up a, a new skill or otherwise. But we're focused here on improvement. You know, how do we get organizations to help change and, and otherwise? And the first principle, which is bedrock, fundamental to all collaboratives, is the notion of freedom of fear, uh, freedom of fear of any kind, reprisal, judgment, um, scorn, or punishment. Uh, that is a fundamental value of every uh, collaborative learning system that IHI has had the pleasure of being involved with, and, and uh, I think it's just absolutely fundamental. There are other things on here, having explicit aims, working with leadership to remove barriers, having a bias towards action and testing, and making sure there's both explicit and tacit knowledge, data and stories, and then everyone having something to teach and everyone has something to learn. This is absolutely fundamental to how we think about collaborative learning. So thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Kadar, for being part of the program. Jane, uh, some parting words from you. Uh, anything that you'll be kind of thinking or working hard on uh, in the coming year that maybe we should come back and ask you about? <laughs> <laughs> well, one is understanding local local contextual adaptation and and how to guide that. Uh, I mean, if there is such a thing as guiding adaptation, um, uh, I think we need a lot more understanding on that. And then I've seen some chat in the discussion. We also really need to be developing better attribution and evaluation methods. So, you know, in a sense, these large national collaboratives are running the collaborative and spread at the same time. Um, and, you know, by its very nature, um, collaboration includes a celebratory component, and celebrations are noisy. And so then you come back and say, yeah, we'll attribute this beyond what was happening elsewhere to this collaborative, and it becomes very messy. And so I think, I think boy, I would welcome anybody who has any great ideas on how um, you know, evaluation and attribution methods could be evolved. 
All right. Thanks, Jane, and thanks for being part of the program. Andrea, some final ideas for you, from you just for today. Oh, well, I, I guess I just want to reinforce how important it is to keep learning what happens in collaboratives. I'm so excited that there's so many different approaches now. And as long as we keep learning which ones actually drive to results and give staff joy in work and get leaders mobilized to improve the whole organization, I'm very happy, and so I'll keep looking for those things. All right. Thanks, Andrea, and thanks for helping with today's program. Bruce, you get the last word today, and uh, in turning to you, I also don't want to forget, I wanted to give a shout-out to communications leader Andrew Cooper from Wales. He was just actually visiting IHI. He, too, has a chapter in your new book talking about a very interesting space of communications and how that, too, can be in the service of improvement, and I think there's some really interesting Interesting stuff to chew on there. So uh, just a teaser, but uh, thank you, Bruce, for uh, helping to spearhead this program with me today. And uh, just some final thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Madge. I would say if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about creating a collaborative or you're thinking about designing or you're going to operate or run a collaborative, you know, it's more than a conference. It's more than getting subject matter experts and content. It's really about action and peers and implementation and getting in the nitty-gritty. And I think it's best to, to learn from the people who've already done this and have a lot of experience, and I think that's a great way to, to start. But also, we're going to learn from you. This whole thing about collaboration is about people um, who are running these things sharing with each other. I mean, we might as well practice what we preach. Let's learn from each other. Try something new. Innovate. Test it out. And if it works, share it so that everybody else can learn. We, we probably haven't finalized the exact way, the best way to do all of these things. It'll probably never be there. And so learning from each other on how to do collaboratives is probably the, a great goal in and of itself. And so let's all teach and all learn this whole space together. Well, thanks again, Bruce, and thanks for giving uh, us the kind of the provocation to be talking about this right now. We look forward uh, to engaging with you more, and we'll look for the book as well. Next, so thank you to my guest today. Thank you for terrific audience for your engagement. Next up on WIHI on November 19th, we're going to be talking about Medicare reimbursement and meaningful conversations about end-of-life care in light of two new physician fee codes, uh, codes, C-O-D-E-S, that are going to enable uh, reimbursement for discussions about uh, advanced care planning with Medicare recipients. Very, very interesting development on the national level, and we're going to talk about how that all intersects with all these various grassroots efforts that have been going on. Been going on. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we use from our discussion today when you log off. You have that option, and we very much appreciate, as always, you filling out the brief survey that's going to pop up. We want to know what worked for you today and what we can always do better. You can also find all the resources on the archive pages for WIHI. They go live uh, later today or early tomorrow morning. And definitely subscribe uh, to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement on iTunes, and you can find uh, today's show on iTunes uh, under WIHI as of tomorrow morning. And you can also catch up on programs that you've missed. If you have any questions whatsoever, please email info at IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible are John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, Caroline Claxton, Haley Ladd, Kim Mitchell here at IHI has also been doing some tweeting this past hour, so thank you, Kim, and we hope you'll look for the tweets in your feeds. And if you don't already follow IHI, please do. Our handle is at the IHI. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. 
So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. I really enjoyed today's discussion and being able to moderate it. Good day, everyone.